Good evening. Okay, our goal tonight is uh, Jeremiah 17, 18, and 19. I'm going to read the first four verses of chapter 17, and then to try to get everybody back on sync, I want to kind of set the stage, give the setting, sort of the chronology of what, as Jeremiah is writing this book, remember he, he was called from the womb uh, with one message to give over his lifetime. He's going to prophesy about the destruction of Jerusalem. He's going to do it before, during, and after. As we look at 17, 18, and 19, we have this very repetitive warning of judgment that's imminent um, on Israel. Um, But when we read these first four verses, it's really Judah's sins are listed But I want to trace it back as we were studying last week where the Lord signals out one particular king that says you guys have crossed the line, you've gone too far, and uh, we'll, we'll go back to that. But let's read the first four verses, Jeremiah 17. Now the sin of Judah is written with the pen of iron and with the point of a diamond and it's engraved on the tablets of their heart and on the horns of your altars. While their children remember their altars and their wooden images by the green trees on the high hills. O my mountains, mountain in the field, I will give as plunder your wealth, all your treasures, your high places of sin within all your borders. And you, even yourself, shall let go of your heritage which I gave you, and I will cause you to serve your enemies in the land which you did not know, for you have kindled a fire in my anger which shall burn forever. So here's the indictment that uh, it's engraved like a diamond in stone. You can't be undone. Um, his accusations of their worshiping, um, the Baals, and as we're going to study earlier, Moloch, and the depravity of how low they've sunk. But to refresh your memory, Let's go back to 2 Kings chapter 21 and point out one particular king, the son of Hezekiah. In 2 Kings chapter 21, it's actually the evaluation of Manasseh. And this will pretty much speak for itself because it was because of this man's sin that the Lord points back to when he says, the sins of your father, this is the one where he said he's just gone too far and I have to bring judgment because of this one man. Uh, so chapter 21, this is the spiritual evaluation of Manasseh. Manasseh was 12 years old when he became king and he reigned 50 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Hephzibah. Now remember, in this verse here, what we can glean is he was 12 years old when he became a king. Now, remember the Lord came to Hezekiah and he told him, get your house in order because I'm gonna take you home. And Hezekiah prayed, oh Lord, please don't do that. And the Lord relented and he says, okay, I'll give you 15 more years. Well, three years after that, um, or somewhere during that time, we have the birth of Manasseh. This kid should have never been. And it's, it's one of the things where if he would have listened to the Lord and um, 
not ask for those extra years, this man would have never even have been. Verse two, he did evil in the sight of the Lord according to the abomination of the nations whom the Lord has cast out before the children of Israel. For he rebuilt the high places while his father Hezekiah had torn him down. He raised up the altars for Baal. He made wooden images as Ahab king of Israel had done as he had worshipped all the hosts of heaven and served them. He also built altars in the house of the Lord, which the Lord had said, in Jerusalem, I'll put my name. And he built altars for all the hosts of heaven in the two courts of the house of the Lord. Verse six is the trump card, which probably was the line that, or the straw that broke the camel's back as far as the Lord was concerned. He also made his son pass through the fire. Uh, practice soothsaying, used witchcraft, consulted spirits and mediums. He did much evil in the sight of the Lord to provoke him to anger. He even carved an image of Asherah that he had made in the house of which the Lord had said to David and Solomon, his son, in this house and in Jerusalem, which I have chosen, out of the tribes of Israel, I will put my name forever. And I will not make the feet of Israel wander anymore from the land which I gave their fathers, only if they are careful to do according to all that I have commanded them and according to all the law that my servant Moses commanded them. But they paid no attention. Manasseh seduced them to do more evil than the nations whom the Lord had destroyed before the children of Israel. And the Lord spoke by his servants and the prophets, saying, Because Manasseh, king of Judah, has done these abominations, he has acted more wickedly than all the Amorites who were before him, and has also made Judah sin with his idols. Therefore, thus says the Lord God of Israel, Behold, I will bring such calamity upon Jerusalem and Judah that whoever hears of it, his ears are going to tingle. And I will stretch out over Jerusalem the measuring line of Samaria and the plummet of the house of Ahab, and I will wipe Jerusalem as one wipes a dish, wiping it and turning it upside down. So I will forsake the remnant of my inheritance Deliver them into the hand of their enemies, and they shall become victims of plunder to all their enemies, because they have done evil in my sight, and have provoked me to anger since the day their fathers had come out of Egypt, even to this day. Moreover, Manasseh shed very much innocent blood, till he had filled Jerusalem from one end to the other, because his sins with which he made Judah sin in doing evil in the sight of the Lord. So here's a spiritual evaluation. Now let's go back to Jeremiah. And as we read these first four verses, he said they have not repented, uh, and he's not going to change his mind, but he keeps pointing back to Manasseh. And um, just the deeds that he had done were even more evil than the, um, the tribes that... Joshua uh, would drive out. So the first four verses sort of sets the tone and gives us again the reason that the Lord 
prophesied back at Manasseh's time. He says, I'm going to do something that's going to make your ears tingle. I'm going to let your, take you to a land. And what he has in mind is now Jeremiah has picked it up. And he's telling the people because of this, nothing is going to change. You're going into captivity, period. Verses 5 through 8, thus says the Lord. Now cursed is a man who trusts in man and makes flesh his strength, whose heart departs from the Lord, for he shall be like a shrub in the desert, and he shall not see when good comes, but shall inhabit the parched places in the wilderness in a salt land which is not inhabited. Now blessed is a man, so we have a contrast here, and this is important. So five and six is going to contrast seven and eight. Now blessed is a man who trusts in the Lord and whose hope is in the Lord. For he shall be like a tree planted by the waters, which spreads out its root by the river and will not fear when heat comes, and, but her leaf will be green and will not be anxious in the year of drought, nor will cease from yielding fruit. Now this smacks all over the place of Psalm 1. And I want you to turn back to Psalm 1. As you begin the Psalms, it begins with this contrast. And the first three verses um, is that man who is a godly man, and it's contrasted with the ungodly in verses 4 through 6. The first three verses read, Now blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stands in the path of sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scornful, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and he, in his law he meditates day and night. And here's a quote again from Jeremiah 17, verse 8. He will be like a tree planted by the river of water that brings forth its fruit in season, whose leaf will shall not wither, and whatever he does will prosper. Now this is a great promise. A couple of things here. Um, you know, what you're meditating on, what you're thinking upon. Um, thou will keep him in perfect peace. Isaiah 26.3, whose mind is stayed on thee, meditating upon, whose mind is stayed on thee because he trusts in thee. And that brings about tranquility, peace of mind, and heart. And I like the verse that he says as he's doing that and his Seeking first the kingdom, the Lord says, if, if you'll put me first, then I'll take care of every, everything else. And thus is a man that whatever he does will prosper. It's another way of saying that I'll work all things out together for the good because you're putting me first, I'm going to take care of you and I will provide for you. Now this is contrasted in verses 4 through 6 for it says, but the ungodly are not so. And this would be in what Jeremiah is speaking to the people and likening and saying, you guys are under the curse of the Lord instead of the blessing. But you're like the chaff which the wind drives away. Uh, Therefore the ungodly shall not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the ungodly will perish. And that's how the Psalms begin. It begins with a simple contrast You can go back to Jeremiah chapter 15. Just seeing if you're listening. 17. And we notice that 5 through 8 
we have um, this verse, at the cross-reference in verse 8 is clearly picked up from Psalm 1, and um, Jeremiah uses it here. Now in verses 9 through 10, a very, 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 very important scripture as it relates to mankind and how easily we are deceived. Verse 9 says, The heart is deceitful above all things. That's an incredible thing to say, that the human heart is deceitful above all things. It is desperately wicked. Who can know it? I, the Lord, search the heart. I test the mind. Even to give every man according to his ways. In other words, you reap what you sow. And according to the fruit of his doing. Now, how many times have we heard or the mentality of people say, well, he has such a good heart and he's following his heart. And um, we think of that as a positive and a good thing. When the fact of the matter is, the scriptures are clear on this, and it's one of the places I think that um, a lot of Christians even wrestle with the fact that Paul in Romans 7 says, for I know that in me that is in my flesh, So he's making a a distinction that I have the Holy Spirit in me, but as far as my flesh goes, dwells no good thing. He says, um, uh, to will is present with me. In other words, I want to do the right thing, but how to perform that which is good, I find not. I know what's right, I know what's wrong, and I want to do the right thing, but the things I want to do, I don't do, and the things I don't want to do, I end up doing. Oh, wretched man that I am. He concludes. He says, oh, wretched man that I am. Who is going to deliver me from this dilemma that my flesh is this tricky and this sly and my, I think I'm doing it for the right motive, but my heart is so tricky that Paul says, I'm not even going to judge myself because I don't even trust my own judgment. That, that's how tricky my flesh is. Now, that's the end of Romans 7. And if it just left us hanging there, It would be a bummer for sure. But then you have Romans 8, verse 1. When he says at the last verse, O wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body? Because I am. There it goes on to say, because he's in Christ. Romans 8, 1. Therefore, big therefore, therefore. Therefore, there is no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. Well, what does that mean? Yeah, the closer you get to the Lord, you, you realize what a miserable, rotten wretch you are. And that Jeremiah 17, verse 9 says that our heart is desperately wicked. Who can know it? But here's the good news. The enemy is aware of this. And so you do something wrong. And um, the enemy, will go, and you call yourself a Christian. And look what you just thought. Look what you just said. Look what you just done. And what's he doing? He is beating you up, right? And he is condemning you. Well, here is where you have to put God's word above your own personal feelings because everything the devil just said is true. Anyone want to say amen? But everything I know about the Bible is that God has taken my unrighteousness and given me his righteousness instead of covering my head and go, oh, wretched man that I am. No. I can come boldly before the throne of grace. And because of what Jesus Christ has done for me, I can stand boldly 
Without the condemnation, there is therefore no condemnation. It doesn't say some. It says no. Now let me qualify that by saying this. Romans 6 verse 1 says, Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid. Don't take advantage of God's grace. We can't. Uh, That old man has been uh, dead and buried. But at the same time, he says, if, if, you, if you do fall short, 1 John 1, 9, if you confess your sins, Lord, Lord, didn't want to do it, but did it again. I blew it. Wicked thought, wrong word, got upset when I should have, got in the flesh, whatever. And um, if you confess that, it says he's faithful and he's just uh, to cleanse you and to forgive you from all unrighteousness. Now, that's the only way, friends, you're going to be free. Do you know that? When Jesus said, you'll know the truth, and the truth will set you free, my heart will trick me. The devil will condemn me. And he has a strong argument uh, going against him. What did he do with Job? Job, he just worships you because you bless him and give him all this stuff. Take it away, you'll see what he's made of. Lord says, it's in your power to do so. Go ahead, go for it. And he found out what was really in Job. And that was he really loved the Lord. And he says, I don't understand this. Naked I came, naked I go. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And in all this, it says, Job did not sin, nor charge God falsely for what was going on. So this whole idea of, of um, you know, when you, you struggle with, um, you think, and we all know people that think they're going to heaven because they're good people, right? Why are you going to heaven? Well, they're balancing off their good deeds against their bad deeds. And Paul says, we don't have any good deeds except for what the Lord, in my, if every good and perfect gift that we do have comes from above. Good place for an amen. If it's good and, um, and it blesses somebody, then guess what? It's coming from the Holy Spirit and the Lord. And it's not you because you and me don't have any good in us. Um, young man comes up to Jesus and said, um, Lord, uh, thou good man, and something along these lines, the Lord said, there's none, none that's good. None that's good. They pointed it out to the rich young ruler. We could spend a whole evening on this one verse. Let's move on to verses 11 through 13. So here, as a partridge that broods and does not hatch, so is he who gets riches but, but not by right. Uh, it will leave him in the midst of days, and at the end he will be a fool. A glorious high throne from the beginning is the place of our sanctuary. O oh Lord, the hope of Israel, all who forsake you, they're going to be ashamed. And those who depart from me Notice, shall be written in the earth because they have forsaken the Lord, the fountain of living waters. Now this is interesting to me because there's only one place in the New Testament where we find Jesus writing in the earth. And um, I want you to turn there. It's in John chapter eight. It's one of my favorite stories. I'll work my way up to it without reading it. Um, Jesus came down from the Mount of Olives, he's in the temple, he's teaching. So he's in the middle of a Bible study. And in the middle of the Bible study, the scribes and the Pharisees who have been trying to trick him and trap him, 
uh, they caught this woman in the act of adultery, and they interrupt the Bible study, they throw her right in front of the, the Lord, and they said, now teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery, right in the act. Now Moses in the law commanded that she should be stolen, but, but what do you say? And this they said, they were testing him that they have, might have something of which to accuse him, but Jesus stooped down and wrote on the ground with his finger as though he did not hear. Now Jeremiah says, um, those who are wicked and have forsaken the Lord, he will write their names in the sand. And I can't help but think, because this is the only place in the New Testament where this actually happens. They, here's the thing. They, could, they were willing to let this woman die. I want to know where the man is, by the way, because if you read the Old Testament law, they're both supposed to be there. So I believe it was a setup from the get-go. By the way, how did they know where to find her in the first place, right? So as you think it through, it's a setup. And they're, they're looking to get the Lord. And as far as they're concerned, they got him trapped. So, you know, he's given them the opportunity to get out of Dodge, but they don't do it. So when they continued asking him, he raised up and said to him, all right, he who is without sin among you, let him throw the first stone. And that sort of set him back a little bit. They had to think about it. They said, okay, he said we can kill her, but we got to be one that's never sinned. And as they're pondering this, he stooped down, and again he began to write on the ground. Now Jeremiah says those who have departed from the Lord, he's going to write their names in the sand. I believe he was, because of Jeremiah, that, and this is the only place in the New Testament where Jesus is writing in the dirt, I think he's naming names here. And I think he writes a name. And then next to it he says, you're an adulterer yourself. And he looks up at the guy. And all of a sudden he's, he takes off. And he starts at the oldest, and one by one he knocks them off. One by one I think he wrote down every one of their names. And he wrote them um, thief. And maybe even the thing that he stole. And um, whatever you read, especially in John, the thing that impresses me is Jesus is always telling people something about themselves that nobody else knows. Take the woman at the well, right? And he goes to the woman at the well, and he told her everything about her life. And um, go, go, go get your husband, and I'll tell you the rest of the story. Well, I don't have a husband. Eh, that's right. Um, you've been married, what, three times, five times, whatever, and the guy you're living with right now you're not married to, so I, I suppose you're telling me the truth. Well, nobody knew that. Maybe one or two, but not five. And so he, to get their attention, he's telling them things that nobody else can know except God. So we read, Then those who heard it, being convicted by their conscience, went out one by one, from the oldest even to the last, and Jesus was left alone with the woman standing in the midst. And when Jesus had raised himself up and saw no one but the woman, he said to her, Woman, where are your accusers of yours? Has no one condemned you? And she said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you. But two things you need to notice here. First of all, she calls him Lord. And I believe like the thief on the cross, there was this moment while all this is going on that she's taking this thing through 
And she knows that these guys are up to something. And how, except only God, would know these things. And I think she's getting saved through the process, just as the thief on the cross was being saved, where he wasn't saved at the beginning of the crucifixion. By the end of it, he said, Lord, remember me. Lord. He called him Lord. Here she calls him Lord. Was she saved before this? Probably not. She probably was a prostitute. And, uh, but here, Jesus said, because of the Lord's stuff, okay, neither do I condemn you. He's forgiving her, just as he did the thief on the cross. And then he said, go and sin no more. He didn't condone what she was doing. And um, he just said, don't do that anymore. She went away a free woman, never to be hassled by these scribes and Pharisees again. Let's go back to Jeremiah. It says in verse 13, those who depart from me shall be written in the earth. That literally came true because they have forsaken the Lord. They didn't care about the Lord. They were worried about their position and they were threatened by Jesus' popularity when you read the full gospel of John. All right, verses 14 through 18 is a song that Bruce and Teresa Miller Mueller wrote, we used to sing it all the time. I was kidding with, with the worship team. I said I want them to learn it right before they come out here tonight. But they, they refused. <laughs> but um, I can't read it without the melody going through my head. It says, and this is Jeremiah. Heal me, O Lord, and I shall be healed. Save me and I will be saved. For you are my praise. And that's the song that Bruce and Teresa put to music. We used to sing it all the time. Uh, Jeremiah chapter 17, verse 14 in the Shiloh songbook. Indeed, they say to me, where is the word of the Lord? Let it come now. As for me, I have not hurried away from being a shepherd who follows you, nor have I desired the woeful day. You know what came out of my lips? It was right there before you. Uh, Do not be a terror to me. You are my hope in the day of doom. Let them be ashamed who persecute me, but do not let me be put to shame. Let them be dismayed, but do not let me be dismayed. Bring on them the day of doom and destroy them with double destruction. The heat was being turned up at this point, just as it was, as you study the book of John, it sort of escalates uh, until they actually do kill the Lord. I see that's the same here with Jeremiah. Because with Jeremiah, um, they're eventually going to put him in the pit by the time we get to, I think it's 19, the last couple of verses, where they, they put him into the pit. Um, and, and here, in verses 14 through 18, he, he calls um, on the Lord to defend them and come against his enemies as they want to destroy him. 19 through 27, they had left off the observance of the Sabbath day. And here he addresses it in the last verses of chapter 17. Thus says the Lord to me, I want you to go and stand in the gate of the children of Israel, by which the kings of Judah come in, and by which they go out, and in all the gates of Jerusalem. And say to them, hear the word of the Lord, you kings of Judah, and all Judah, and all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, who enter by these gates, thus says the Lord, take heed 
to yourselves, and I don't want you to bear no burden on the Sabbath day, nor bring it into the gates of Jerusalem, nor carry a burden out of your house on the Sabbath day. I don't don't want you to work, but hallow the Sabbath day as I commanded your fathers. But they did not obey nor incline their ear, but made their neck stiff. Uh, They they might not hear nor receive instruction. Uh, They were set totally in their ways. And it shall be if you diligently heed me, says the Lord, to bring no burden through the gates of the city on the Sabbath day, but hell of the Sabbath day to do no work. Well, they didn't want business to stop. They wanted business to keep, keep on going. I was surprised on the 4th of July. I wanted to do some things around the house. So I, 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 I called ahead because I'm sure, well, they're not going to be open. It's the 4th of July. And the two places that I called, they were both open, saying, no, it's one of the best days of the year for us. And um, not taking that, that day of rest, they were more interested in business. Verse 25 Then shall they enter the gates of this city, kings and princes sitting on the thrones of David, uh, riding in chariots and on horses, and their princes accompanied by the men of Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and this city shall remain forever. And they shall come from the cities of Judah and from the places around Jerusalem, from the land of Benjamin and from the lowlands and from the mountains and from the south, bringing burnt offerings and sacrifice and grain offerings and incense, bringing sacrifice of praise to the house of the Lord. But if you will not heed me to hallow the Sabbath day, such as not carrying a burden when entering the gates of Jerusalem on the Sabbath day, then I will kindle a fire in its gates and it shall devour the place of Jerusalem and it won't be quenched. So here's just one, these last verses, verses... um, 19 through 27, where Jeremiah calls them to get back to just worshiping the Lord on that day and forget about the business. And if they would, um, it would be like the days of David. They'd be blessed. And if they continued on, then exactly what happened, happened. Nebuchadnezzar burned Jerusalem to the ground. We're going to go, on Sunday I'm going to do a little presentation on, on our trip that's coming up to Israel. And when, one of the places we actually go to is, is the Burnt Houses, which would have been just a little bit north of where the temple would have been. The wealthy people would have had these houses. And when they did all the excavation um, with the technology that they have today, um, uh, they have a presentation of what it was like the day Jerusalem was burned. And it takes, takes it back to um, the, the part, at least in, in, in 70 AD. This, of course, would have been before that. All right, chapter 18, the sign of the potter. Now we go with Jeremiah down to the potter's house. And, um, and he's going to use this illustration to try to get there attention about what's going to happen. Said the word which came to Jeremiah from the Lord saying, Arise and go down to the potter's house, and there I'll cause you to hear my words. 
So I went down to the potter's house and there he was making something at the wheel. How many of you seen, ever seen a potter working the pedals, fashioning the clay? Most people have somewhere. You've, okay, you have an idea what's, what's being made here. And it's really an illustration that he is uh, giving to them. And he says, verse four, and the vessel that he made of clay was marred in the hand of the potter. So he made it again into another vessel as it seemed good to the potter to be made. So he's watching this, but now the, the Lord speaks to him and he says, this is just an illustration. Then the word of the Lord came to me saying, O house of Israel, can I not do with you as this potter? Says the Lord, look, as the clay is in the potter's hand, so are you in my hand, O house of Israel. Now on Sunday, it's an illustration. He's saying, I want you to be pliable. I want to work with you. I want you to yield to my hand in your life just as a potter shapes a vessel of a clay into something that he wants it to be. That's what I want to do with you. It is an illustration. Now on Sunday, um, I was thinking, how do I make the point that in the last days the Lord says that the church would be inundated with false teaching, false prophets, and false doctrine. Remember? And my point that I wanted to get across is it just has to be a little bit. The Bible says a little leaven leavens a whole lump. So I thought of this illustration, so I took out my fresh little glass of water and I sipped it, and then I took out my little bottle of fake arsenic and put a little drop in there. Just a drop, just a little drop. And I said, anybody want it? I had no takers. Well, probably really isn't arsenic, but I'm not gonna take the chance. Well, it proved the point, it made the point. All you need is just a little bit. So the point was we have this book. And the idea was we are not to add to it or take away from it. Good place for an amen. Why do we teach the Bible chapter by chapter and verse by verse? Safety valve for the guy behind the pulpit here. Not adding to it, not taking away from it. Uh, Jeremiah is not a happy, clappy book. All agreed? Is there a happy message here? No. Is there any good outcome? No. They're stiff-necked. Nothing good's going to happen. Should we skip it, therefore, and talk about something that'll make you feel nice and warm and fuzzy? Can't do that either. So the idea is that's why we do what we do. You get the whole counsel of God that way. You get God's perspective. And you, then you find these little hidden treasures. Oh, uh, those who depart from me, I'm going to write their names in the sand. And all of a sudden, John chapter 8 takes on a whole new meaning. And all of a sudden, Psalm 1 takes on a whole new meaning. You find how the Holy Spirit, hundreds of years apart, interconnects all these things. And the result of all that is we go, wow, what an incredible book. How great is our God? And our faith, as a result, is increased when we see the awesomeness of uh, what he says. It's going to take eternity for us to really grasp what's really in this book. Heaven and earth will pass away, but not this book. Countless ages to come, he's going to be revealing truth through this book. Can't wait for those Bible studies. All right, verse 7. The instant I speak concerning a nation, 
and concerning a kingdom to pluck up, to pull down, and destroy it. If that nation against whom I have spoken turns from its evil, I will relent of its disaster that I thought to bring upon it. An instant I, I speak concerning a nation and concerning a kingdom to build and to plant it, if it does evil in my sight so that it does not obey my voice, then I will relent concerning the good with which I said I would benefit it. Now, therefore, I want you to speak to the men of Judah and to the inhabitants of Jerusalem, saying, Thus says the Lord, Behold, I am fashioning a disaster and devising a plan against you. Return now, every one of you, from his evil ways and make your ways uh, doing good. And they said, this is hopeless. So we will walk according to our own plans and we will, everyone, do the imagination of his evil heart. And so, you know, it reminds me of um, um, this whole idea where the, the Lord is using illustration. I want to work with you guys so that you'll be pliable and so that I can conform you. Paul talks about this, this transformation that we go through as Christians. In 2 Timothy 2.20, it talks about vessels. It says, in a house, are there not vessels of gold and silver? But there's also vessels of wood and clay, some for honor and some for dishonor. You might have a beautiful vase. I got this beautiful alabaster vase when we were on a side trip to Egypt and seeing the pyramids one time. And, um, but it's only 10 feet away from the garbage can. <laughs> one vessel is for garbage, and one is this really nice alabaster vase. And um, some vessels are uh, of gold and silver, but others you, you use for your garbage can. Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from the latter, he will be a vessel for honor, sanctified and useful for the master, prepared for every good work. He says, flee youthful lust, but pursue righteousness, faith, love, with those who call on the name of the Lord. So we're vessels. But in Ephesians, concerning these vessels, it says, for by grace you've been saved through faith, that not of yourself, it's a gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. Then it says, for we are his workmanship. We're being fashioned, where there's poema, actually, in the Greek. We were created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So, guys, you and I are a work in progress. You're on the wheel. The question is, are you pliable? I'm going to have you get a little sidetracked and I'll just give you two more verses in the book of Romans. Uh, go to Romans chapter 12, and we'll see this more clearly here. And Paul's begging them to get this. When he says beseech, it's an old English word, which really means I'm begging you to get this. I beg you, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice. Let me just add something here in the idea of the potter's wheel. That you present yourself and you're pliable, a living sacrifice, acceptable, which is your reasonable service. In other words, in light of everything that God has done, 
it is simply a very reasonable thing to do that we used to have, there was a song by the American breed called Bend Me, Shape Me. Any of you old timers remember it? Bend me, shape me any way you want to as long as you love me, it's all right. And that's basically what the Lord is saying here. Let's go on to verse two. And be not conformed. There's the transform. Somebody's going to form you. Don't let the world do the transformation, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is a good and acceptable perfect will of God. I read those scriptures as saying, let the Lord allow you to be shaped the way he wants to. Your, your work in progress, you're a vessel that he's preordained to work with. Understand it, that he wants you to be pliable. And it's a very reasonable thing to do in light that all he's done for us. Another good place for an amen. It's just reasonable. All right, let's go back to Jeremiah and finish up uh, this chapter. 12? Yes, okay, that's good. Return every one of you from his evil ways to make your ways doing good. And they said this, oh, yeah, right, verse 12. This is hopeless, so we will walk according to our own plans. That's where we got um, sidetracked. No, we're going to do our own thing. And we're not going to be pliable. You can use the illustration as a potter, but um, we're not going to work in a potter's hands. Verse 13. Therefore, thus says the Lord, ask now among the Gentiles, who has heard such things? The virgins of Israel have done a very horrible thing. Will a man leave the snow water of Lebanon, which comes from the rocks of the field? Will the cold flowing waters be forsaken for strange waters? Because my people have forgotten me, they have burned incense to worthless idols, they've caused themselves to stumble in their way. From the ancient path, to walk in pathways and not a highway, to make the land desolate and perpetual hissing. Everyone who passes by it will be astonished. They'll shake their head. I will scatter them as with an east wind before the enemy. I will show them the back and not the face in the day of their calamity. So in these verses 7 through 17, the Lord is stating their case, what he's going to do. And it's at this point, they've had it up to here with Jeremiah. Because all he has to say is things that they don't want to hear. So they devise their own plan. Verse 18 to the end. Then they said, come. These are the people speaking now. And let us devise plans against Jeremiah. How can we take this guy out? All he talks about is judgment. Don't want to hear it. For the law shall not perish from the priest, nor counsel from the wise, nor the word from the prophet. Come, let's attack him with the tongue, and let us not give heed to any of his words. Uh, Give heed to me, O Lord. So verse 18 is their plot. Um, Give heed to me, O Lord, and listen to the voice of those who contend with me. Now Jeremiah is interjecting. Lord, you heard that. You heard what they want to do to me. They want to take me out. Uh, Shall evil be repaid for good? Lord, I'm only doing what you told me to do, and they don't like it. For they have dug a pit for my life. Remember that I stood before you to speak good for them and, and to turn away your wrath from them. 
Therefore, deliver up their children to the famine and pour out their blood by the force of the sword. Let their wives become widows and bereaved of their children. Uh, Let their men be put to death. Let their young men be slain by the sword in battle. Let a cry be heard from their houses when you bring a troop suddenly upon them. Uh, For they have dug a pit to take me. Now this was literal, where they actually put uh, Jeremiah down into a miry pit to shut him up. And hidden snares for my feet. Yet, Lord, you know all their counsel, which is against me to slay me. You know, they're up to something, conniving, to try to shut him up from his message. Provide no atonement, atonement for their iniquity, nor blot out their sins from your sight, but let them be overthrown before you. Uh, deal thus with them in the time of your anger. If I would sum up chapter um, uh, 18, he uses an illustration. Uh, says, Jeremiah, go down to the potter's house, see what he's doing. And he's making this vessel, and he's working it, but it's marred. And we'll talk more about, about this illustration on, on a Sunday morning. Uh, the last chapter tonight, and 19, is the, the sign of the broken vessel. In the first verse of chapter 19, God sends Jeremiah to get a potter's earthen bottle and tells him to take it to the elders of the people of the, pre, of the priest with them as a witness. So verse 1 of 19, thus says the Lord, I want you to go and get a potter's earthen flask. Take some of the elders of the people and some of the elders of the priest. And I want you to go to the valley of the sons of Himmon, which is by the entry of uh, the potshed grate, and proclaim there the words that I will tell you. And say, hear the word of the Lord, O kings of Judah. So he's to take some witnesses that are leaders and bring them to the valley of Himmon. And to them he speaks to the kings of Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel. Behold, I will bring such a catastrophe on this place that whoever hears it, his ears are going to tingle. Because, does that sound familiar? Because they have forsaken me and made this place an alien place because they have burned incense in it to other gods whom who neither they, their fathers, nor the kings of Judah have known. And they have filled this place with the blood of the innocent. And I'm thinking, thinking back to Manasseh right now. They have also built the high places to Baal, to burn their sons with fire for burnt offerings to Baal and to, I should say to Moloch also, which I did not command to speak, nor did it come into my mind. So the Lord's making it clear, and I don't know just how depraved a country can get where they actually take their own children and, um, and have them killed. And yet we have to admit we are just as guilty um, in our own country with the whole issue of abortion as if um, um, the infant inside of a womb is something other than a human being. And according to Psalm 139, 
conception and life begins before conception. He said, David said, before I was in the womb, you knew me. And you wrote down all my days before me. And so when does life begin? Before the womb, before conception. Now, of course, that's a biblical argument. And anybody debating the, the issues today of pro-life, pro-choice, that's not in their mindset. But it is a biblical mindset. There should be no doubt about that. Good place for an amen. amen. Tough amen at this place, but still a good place for one. And uh, that's what they were uh, guilty of, even, even their children. And he says, therefore the days are coming. Um, therefore, behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, that this place shall no more be called Tophet, or the valley of the sons of Heman, but the valley of slaughter. And I will make void the council of Judah and Jerusalem in this place. And I will cause them to fall by the sword before their enemies and by the hands of those who seek their lives. Their corpses I will give as meat for the birds of heaven and for the beasts of the earth. I will make this city desolate and a hissing. Everyone who passes by will be astonished and hiss because of all the plagues. And I will cause them to eat the flesh of their sons and the flesh of their daughters. And everyone shall eat the flesh of his friend in the siege in the desperation which with their enemies uh, of those who seek their lives shall drive them to despair. And so in, in these verses here, I want to turn to the book of Leviticus at this time. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus. And um, chapter 26, verse 27 through 31 foretelling again through Moses, the first five books of Moses, warning way back then about these events. Verse 27, Leviticus 26, and after all this, if you do not obey me but walk contrary to me, then I will also walk contrary to you in fury, and I, even I, will chastise you seven times for your sins. You will eat the flesh of your sons and eat the flesh of your daughters. I can't imagine that ever happening. Uh, but it did happen. Now, I'll get into that in just a bit. I will destroy your high places, cut down your incense altars, and cast your carcasses on the lifeless forms of your idols, and my soul shall abhor you, and I will lay your cities waste and bring your sanctuaries to desolation, and I will not smell the fragrance of your sweet aroma. I will bring the land to desolation. When Nebuchadnezzar laid siege... Let's go back and we'll finish up in chapter 19. When he did lay siege, they did become so hungry, that's actually what they reverted to, cannibalism. And they were so hungry that um, they began to do exactly what the scripture says. Boy, the thing about the Bible is it is so graphic. And it doesn't hold anything back. I mean, what's more, <laughs> what's more gross than talking about cannibalism? And yet he says it twice, once in Leviticus and here. So it's going to get so bad because you guys wouldn't listen about turning back to me that um, man is going to become so hungry during the siege that I lay against them 
that they're going to resort to eating the flesh of their daughters. Well, that really happened, gang, as, as uncomfortable it is to hear it and as is just as uncomfortable for me it is to speak it. Verse 10, then you shall break the flask in the sight of the men to go with you. Remember verse 1. This is all an illustration. Go to the Valley of Hymen. Take a piece of pottery and break it. And then you will break the flask in the sight of the men who go with you and say to them, thus says the Lord of hosts, even so. So here's the illustration again. I will break this people, this city, as one breaks a potter's vessel, which cannot be made whole again. And they shall bury them in Tophet till there is no more place to bury. And thus I will do to this place, says the Lord, and to the inhabitants and make this city like Tophet. And the houses of Jerusalem and the houses of the kings of Judah will be defiled like the place of Tophet because of all the houses of whose roofs they have burned incense to all the hosts of heaven. And I believe here what we have in view is um, what we call today the Zodiac. And um, um, the Maseroth, actually at one time, you know, oh, I, I can't go there. I'm out of time. It's a whole other study. But before the, before the enemy got us hands on the heavenly constellations, um, there's, there's good evidence that the gospel can be studied. Bullinger has a book called The Witness in the Stars. And before Satan corrupted it and turned it into the Zodiac as a means of demonic communication, that's what this was here, during maybe Abraham's time, he could have understood the gospel according to the stars. And there's some good information. Bullinger has a witness of the stars. I'm not saying it as doctrine, but it sure is interesting. It's called the Maseroth, before it was taken on the name the Zodiac, where people read their horoscopes by looking at the stars. Well, that's what they were burning their incense to and poured out drink offerings to these other gods. Then Jeremiah came from Tophet, where the Lord had sent him to prophesy, And he stood in the court of the Lord's house and said to the people, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Behold, I will bring on this city and on all her towns all the doom I have pronounced against it, because they have stiffened their necks that they might not hear my words. Now how many times we've gone through 19 chapters that we've had this last verse repeated how many different ways? all saying the same thing. Pretty much, right? So we're getting to that part where Jeremiah is forewarning them. We're quickly heading to the part where it's actually going to happen, and he's going to be speaking to them during that period of time. He has warned, pleaded, and entreated, but their hearts, like it says in in chapter 17, the heart is deceitful above all things. They simply wouldn't hear and again, that Paul Simon lyric comes to mind. Man, here's what he wants to hear and disregards the rest. Let's stand and we'll pray. Lord, again, as we make our way through your word, um, again, we stand amazed as you uh, speak truth concerning our own human condition. Apart from you, there dwells no good thing. And apart from you, you can do nothing. And how grateful we are, Lord, um, 
that you live inside of us. And if anything good ever comes out of us, Lord, we'll be really quick to say, well, praise the Lord, because we know it's not us. So, secondly, Lord, as we read in Romans, as Paul begs the Romans to allow themselves to please be pliable, it's um, the right thing to do because of what you've done for us. So, we give you permission, Lord, to bend us and shape us any way you want to, because we know that you love us. So go before us the rest of this night and uh, bless our fellowship, Lord. And as, as we go our way, may you be glorified. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.